Romans chapter 14. Throughout the book of Romans, Paul has been unfolding the message of the gospel. We've talked about that many times, describing in detail where we came from. We saw that in the early chapters. From a life in which we were totally depraved, we were totally unable to please God in any way. He then explained what happened to us. We were declared to be righteous through our faith in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And then what it is yet in store for us as well, we've seen in later chapters. We are anxiously awaiting the coming of our Lord to return with Him to live our lives in glory for eternity. And now in these final chapters, starting in chapter 12 on, we're seeing Paul relate to us some of the things that are expected of us as children of God. We are required to be obedient to Him. We are required to submit to Him. We are required to manifest His character within our own lives because we belong to Him. We are to sacrifice our very bodies to Him. We have been privileged to become servants of the Most High God. What a remarkable blessing that we have been given. I can say, and you can say, anyone here that has put their faith and trust in Christ, that we are the children of the living God. And as a child of God, as we saw at the end of our last lesson a couple weeks ago, we are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, turning our full focus to following after His will and submitting to Him. We are to make no provision for sin in our lives kicking sin off of our doorstep, making no plans for it, making no room for it in our lives. For the believer, sin should never be entertained. It should never be given an opportunity to take hold in our lives. And as an individual, as a believer in Jesus Christ, it is my responsibility to examine my own life, to get rid of sin that is in my life, to eradicate it entirely. We've seen several times already in our study in Romans that this is possible because I have been made new. And the Holy Spirit resides in me, empowers me to live a life that is now free from sin. There is no need for me to sin. There is no sin that exists that enslaves me any longer. There is no power that the flesh can have over me that is greater than the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells me. Therefore, in light of this biblical truth, I can get rid of all the sin in my life, and that should be the goal of my life. That should be true of me. But our responsibility isn't just limited to ourselves, but for the entire body as well, for the church. The Bible also talks about taking care of sin amongst those in the church. There is a responsibility that we have towards one another to root out sin as well, to confront those that are in sin. Jesus said in Matthew 18, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. This is the first step in church discipline. Now, hopefully, if you go and reprove someone who is in sin, it doesn't get through the process of church discipline. You go and talk to them about their sin. You talk to them in a loving way. Talking to them about their sin is an act of love and it needs to be carried out as such. But it is necessary because sin has no place in the family of God. Within the body of Christ, sin must be dealt with. And there are many places that we read in scripture where sin is clearly defined. The Bible 
lists out several things for us, right? And we can all come up with our own laundry lists. Lying, fornication, drunkenness, homosexuality, strife, coveting, stealing, murder, all these things we know and recognize as sin. These things are all clearly defined in Scripture. There are also things that we know that we are to do that we fail to do, that we don't do, and that is also sin the Bible talks about. James chapter 4 Verse 17 says, therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Through knowledge of the will of God, we become more and more mature and we know more and more about the things that we are to be doing as his children. And there comes responsibility on the part of the believer to respond to God's word and to do what it is that we are to do, supposed to do. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, 47 and 48, and that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes, but the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. For everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. Those that have greater knowledge, more is required of. So when we know what we are to do, we should be doing it. In the last chapter, chapter 13 of Romans, we looked at our responsibility to obey government, pay our taxes. In chapter 12, we looked at we are, how we are to be serving one another and utilizing our spiritual gifts, how we are to be loving one another, have, holding each other in not only agape love, but in brotherly love. We should be showing that to each other. All those things are things that we have responsibility to do. And knowing that we have these responsibilities, Failure to do them would be sin on our part. These are all clear-cut biblical examples of what is right and wrong for us to do. But as we all know, there are times when the Bible doesn't address things specifically. There are times when we are left on our own to use the knowledge and the wisdom that we've been given to draw our own conclusions where the Bible doesn't clearly say things. And in the church... We are all people from different backgrounds, come from different communities, different upbringings, different ages, different levels of spiritual maturity. And sometimes we don't always agree on everything that we do, on whether or not we have liberty or freedom to act in certain areas. And it's this distinction among believers that Paul is going to address here in Romans chapter 14 and for the last part, um, and for the first part, I'm sorry, Romans 15 as well. We're reminded again that the church at Rome was a diverse group. <clears throat> at the very least, it was diverse in that there were Jews and Gentiles, both groups that comprised this church. We've seen both Jew and Gentile believers addressed throughout the letter. And Jew and Gentile, these people would have been raised much differently and would not have seen eye to eye when it came to things like how to worship. The Jews, having had the Mosaic Law, had very restrictive things, right? Very restrictive in what they could and couldn't do, what they ate, what they did on certain days, and how they could worship. The Gentiles came out of different pagan worship systems they would have been exposed to much different practices. And Jew and Gentile together was pretty much unheard of in the majority, for the majority of their lives. They did not interact. 
certainly in the way that they had been raised. But yet here they were, a church composed of both Jew and Gentile believers, all worshiping together. There would have been some differences of opinion in what they held to as far as what was right and what was the wrong way of doing things. And that's the situation that Paul is writing to address in this section. How do we relate to one another as believers when we don't see eye to eye on these types of things? What should our attitudes be towards one another? How should we treat one another in matters in which we disagree, which the scripture does not clearly address? Now it's important to note that, extinct, that distinction. That we're talking about things that aren't clearly addressed in scripture which is why I spent the time talking about things that are clearly addressed in Scripture. As we go through this section, we're going to see that we should not be judging one another on these matters that amount to liberty. But we shouldn't take that too far and conclude that there should never be a time where we should confront any believer on any issue at all. As an example, if the matter in which we disagree, I mean, we can all point to different things in which we might disagree, right? But if the matter in which we disagree is that, is that you say that we should wear a, cert, a suit to church every week, should always be dressed to the nines, as they say, right? But I say, well, it's okay to wear jeans. I could wear shorts. I could wear whatever. And we have this difference of opinion on that. That's an area where we may agree to disagree, but we can still have fellowship with one another. But if we're disagreeing over something like the deity of Christ, or, or somebody, a male member of the church comes in and says, well, I just moved in with my boyfriend and we're gonna get married, that's not something that's okay for us to agree to disagree on. That's something that needs to be addressed. That would be a much more serious issue. So keep in mind as we go through this section in the next few weeks that we're talking about matters of liberty here. These are matters where the Bible doesn't specifically speak to every issue. We talk about things like what type of music we should have during our worship. This is an area where there's liberty comes in a lot. Some would say that we should only be singing the old hymns. Others think that the music should be more modern and more uplifting. I mean, we have every week where Josh is up there with a guitar. What if he were to plug in an electric guitar one week? What, how would that go over? What if we had a drum set up there? I'm sure people would have opinions on both sides of whether or not that would be a good or bad thing to do. We talk about serving of communion. We pass the bread first. Then we pass the cup. Others may have it in, in a church where they pass both of them together. I remember when I was in college, our college group went down to Kansas City one week and we visited a church that we didn't, I mean, it was a good church, but none of us had been there before and they were having communion that day. And they had their practice where they came to you and they had the bread in the cup and you were supposed to take it right then and there, but none of us knew that. So we just took a piece and held it and the ushers didn't know what to do. There was just a, a difference in the practice of the way that communion was done. But these are some of the things that we're talking about here, matters where the Bible doesn't specifically say where we would have liberty to make different decisions on things. But what's the key in each of these situations? Each group, whether they think one way or the other, all that they're doing is for the glory of God. 
I like these songs best because I think this is the best way to worship God. We do communion this way because we think this is the way that it works for us and it's glorifying to God. And we'll see that through here, uh, that all through here, that this is the key consideration for all that we're going to be doing here. So as we come to Romans 14, we come to talk about this subject, and Paul will introduce us to the idea of weaker and stronger Christians. And it's important to note that both groups that he's talking about here are Christians. We're talking about believers. There's no doubt here as to their salvation. But the concern is centered around how believers in both instances treat one another, whether they are stronger or weaker in faith, as he's going to talk about. And the tendency when we talk about stronger and weaker is that no one likes to think of themselves as the weaker brother. But it's clear how Paul uses these terms through this section. The one who's weaker is the one who holds that we should not eat certain things that we should not drink certain things, or that we should hold certain days above another. The weaker brother says that things should be more restrictive. The stronger is the one who holds that what you eat or drink doesn't matter, or that all days are the same. The stronger brother recognizes that there is more liberty in the areas in which Paul is addressing here. And so as we come to verse 1 of Romans 14, we're going to see that Paul addresses the stronger brother first. He says, now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. Now he specifically mentions the weak in faith here, but he must be talking to the stronger brother, right? This is addressed to those who are strong. And in fact, as we read through chapters 14 and 15, we'll see that the strong are the ones that are in the majority in Rome. Paul addresses most of his comments towards the stronger brethren, and when he gets to verse 1 of chapter 15, we'll see that he actually includes himself in that group as well. So what we're going to see is that he's talking about the blending of Jewish and Gentile believers in Rome for this distinction. The Jews would have had many different dietary laws, many different observances of days that they would hold to that would have carried over from their upbringing, just things that they were used to, things that they had always done. Then it would have come from their teachings of the law. And these would be things that the Gentiles wouldn't, wouldn't have known. They wouldn't have had any care about. And we've already seen Paul distinguish between the two groups um, within this church on several different occasions, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 7, chapter 9 through 11, where all showed us distinctions and talking to different groups within this church. So it's no doubt that, that coming from different religious backgrounds, the two groups would have had some different ideas on what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. So the stronger brother is to accept the one who is weak in faith. And the danger is that those with certain convictions would not be welcome in the church at Rome. They don't follow the same things we do. They don't believe the same thing we do. That they would be looked down on for abstaining from certain things or holding to certain things. Now, once again, we're not talking about they don't believe the gospel. That's not what's at issue here. It's these specific practices. So the weak in faith doesn't necessarily mean that their salvation is inferior in any way. That's not what he means by that. It basically means that they have a lack of understanding regarding their new life in Christ. An understanding that only comes from maturity over time. 
And he could very well even be thinking of new converts that are coming into the church here. We see a similar concept in 1 John chapter 2, where John refers to little children and fathers and young men. And there he's talking also about believers. All three of those groups are believers, but they are believers at different stages of their spiritual maturity. So he's calling on the strong to accept the weak. However, he gives clarification at the end of the verse, not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. He might sit there and say, well, yeah, we'll bring them in because we can fix them. We'll bring him in. I need to straighten him out. I need to make him understand what he's believing. Well, that's dumb. What he's talking about, that's, that's stupid. Allowing them to come into their fellowship because they think that they're fixable. Is that why we are to accept them? Is that why we bring them in? Paul says, no, that's not why we accept them. With that attitude, what do we do if they don't change? What if they don't change their minds? What if they don't come around our way of thinking? We kick them out? No, that's not the point here. The point here is that we accept them in, period. They're believers. Verse 2 says, One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. So now we get to the example, right, to the things that he's talking about here. So he's talking about eating certain types of foods, and it's between meat and vegetables. Now, we understand that he's not talking about making healthy choices. He's not talking about the argument between whether you should have a vegan lifestyle or I don't, you know, I don't eat red meat for this or that. That's not what he's saying here. This is a discussion on doing what is pleasing to God, on making a decision as we live our lives and sacrifice to our Lord. The one stronger in faith here recognizes by his understanding and maturity in the faith that he is free to eat all things. He can eat the meat and the vegetables that nothing is forbidden, nothing that in and of itself is defiling to eat. Turn with me over to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 is the chapter where Peter goes to visit Cornelius. And Cornelius was a Gentile. He was a Roman centurion. And visiting Gentiles at that point in time wasn't done. Peter was a Jew. He wasn't, he wouldn't associate with Gentiles. And you just didn't associate with the unclean Gentiles. It was unheard of. And at this point, even the apostles still held that line of thinking. But before he goes there, we see in, in starting in verse 11, he falls into this trance and he sees this vision. It says, and he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners through the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. A voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter says, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. So three times Peter sees this, right? He has this same exchange. Peter sees these animals Animals that all his life he had considered, he recognized them as those are the animals I can't eat. I can't eat those. The law says they're unclean. And all his life he understood, I don't eat those things. But now what? He's no longer under the law. What you eat doesn't matter. Now it's right after this that men come to take him to see Cornelius the Gentile. 
something else that was considered unclean. You don't, a Jew doesn't go visit Gentiles, but it is no longer unclean. In fact, if you look down at verse 28, he realizes this as he's talking to them. Verse 28 of chapter 10 says, And he, Peter, said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. So here Peter is understanding it. He gets it because it has been explained to him. It's been revealed to him through a greater knowledge and understanding of the word, what God has revealed to him. He was the one weak in faith. He didn't think that he could go and visit. But now he had gained maturity. He had gained strength in his faith. So the food is no longer unclean. The Gentiles no longer unclean. So back in Romans chapter 14, that's the same type of issue that we have going on here. There are some foods that some of the members see as unclean. But others, those who are stronger and more mature in the faith, they understand that that really doesn't matter. Maybe the church at Rome was, you know, every Saturday night's the bacon potluck night or something like that. And these Jewish believers coming in were like, we can't do that. We can't go there. And this wasn't just a Jew and Gentile thing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul talks to the Gentile believers in Corinth about whether or not it was okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols. The good meat in the marketplace was often sacrificed to the gods first. Some believers, they had a problem with that. I can't eat that meat. It was sacrificed to this pagan god. Others realized that it's just meat. I don't have a problem with that. So the same type of situations here, even among the Gentiles. Well, what we have here, the weaker brother eats only vegetables because he's not going to take advantage of, you know, bacon night. The meat is unclean for whatever reason to him. He doesn't see that as an option for him to partake of that. So how should we regard one another? Or how should each one regard the other? Look at verse 3. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. For God has accepted him. So the one strong in faith, he eats because he knows there's nothing wrong with eating. The one who is weak in faith, he doesn't understand that he can eat it. So he doesn't eat. Now the dangers here is that the strong one, the one who's got the ham sandwich or whatever, the piece of bacon, he's looking down on the one, how can you not eat bacon, right? Bacon's wonderful. He's foolish, he doesn't understand, and therefore, what, what good is he? He's, he's that weird guy that won't eat, won't partake in our meal. And that's an improper attitude to have towards anyone in the body of Christ. That's the point here. I remember being a relatively new believer when I was in my college group years ago. And I would, I didn't know much. And I would ask dumb questions. And, and I remember there were some people that I would talk to that I could tell they didn't have much use for me because I just wasn't knowledgeable. I just didn't, I didn't know things. And I would probably say things that were pretty foolish or ask dumb questions. But I could tell that they didn't really value my opinion. They didn't really put up with my questions because I was weak in faith. They were probably, well, I won't say they were right to do so, but, but they probably thought, who's this guy? 
But I'd say that there were some that had this kind of attitude that we're seeing here. I think that was what some of those guys were exhibiting. But here we see the danger of those that are holding the weaker brothers in contempt because they don't see them eating with the same type of liberty and they think that they're being foolish. Now on the other hand, there's danger on the other side as well. The other danger is that the weak one judges those that are strong in faith. See, in the weak believer's eyes, the stronger brother's doing the wrong thing, right? That's not something that they should be doing. They're coming in, they're saying, they're eating bacon. They're having a ham sandwich. They can't do that. That's wrong. That's wrong of them to do. In fact, they might even look at that as sinful. In Acts chapter 11, I mean, you remember when we were talking back in Acts chapter 10, Paul or Peter was like, I can't do that. Kill and eat. I can't eat those things. That's wrong. In Acts chapter 11, after Peter gets back from Cornelius, the other apostles want an explanation from Peter. Why did you go to the Gentiles? Because in their minds, that's not right. Why did you go there? And Peter has to explain what he saw. So in their eyes, in the weak brother's eyes here, the food is unclean and they believe it's unacceptable before God to eat that food. So in both cases, either regarding them with contempt or judging the other, the believer's in the wrong there. Now note here, to this point in the argument, Paul isn't really even addressing which opinion is correct. I mean, we talked about what what Peter saw, we understand that, that the one stronger in faith knew a little bit more. But in fact, he's really not even going to address the issue here. Paul really hasn't talked about that yet. He's not really going to address that aspect until we get down a little bit further into the chapter. Why doesn't he address that? Why isn't he talking about which is right and wrong? Because that's not the point. The point is how we act towards each other in light of these differences that we have with each other. I remember times when my kids would fight. I'd come into the room and they'd be screaming at each other or they'd be yelling or hitting each other, whatever. And I'd just come in and I'd break it up. I'd say, you go sit over there and you sit over there. And what would they do? Well, he did this and oh no, she did that. And I'm like, I don't care. I don't care what you did. I don't care what the issue was. You shouldn't be fighting. That's not how you should act. Same for us as believers. That's what Paul's saying here. Don't act that way. We're not talking about right and wrong. We're talking about this is not how you treat each other. And this is the same for us as believers. Paul tells him at the end of verse 3 why. He says, for God has accepted him. And this is the crucial point here. If God has accepted that fellow Christian, God has declared him to be part of his family, part of the same family that I am a part of. He's accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're both in that same family of God. God has given him every one of the same spiritual blessings that he has given me. Then who am I to reject him? Who am I to hold him into contempt? Who am I to judge him? Can I really say, well, he might be acceptable to God. God has accepted him. God has accepted him into his family, but he's not acceptable to me. No, of course I can't say that. Are my opinions greater than God's? Are my standards higher than God's? Of course not. With what we're talking about here, God did not see fit to specifically address a certain situation. And yet I'm going to make that determination for him. I'm going to decide that a fellow believer is acceptable or should be rejected based on my own opinion. No, God has accepted him, and therefore, 
I should accept him. Now in verses 4 through 9, Paul goes on to explain this concept. He says in verse 4, Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls. And we need to remember our role in our relationship with God. We are his servants. We are his bond slaves. We belong to him. And that is true of every believer as well. I am his servant. You are his servant. What we do every day, we do in obedience to him. We do for his good pleasure, not for each other's good pleasure. Now, we're called to love each other. We're called to care for each other. And yes, we are even called to serve one another. But ultimately, the things that we do, we do because we are the servants of God. In light of that, what right do I have to judge you on what you do in service to the Lord? As you serve God, as you strive to please him, who am I to say that you aren't pleasing him in the right way? And that's what we're talking about here, because again, these are matters of of liberty. Now, it bears repeating again, because I don't want anybody to get the wrong idea. This is in reference to liberty. This is not outright sins that we're talking about here. Because a believer involved in immorality or some other sin can't hide behind Romans 14.4 and say, see, you can't judge me. You can't tell me that what I'm doing is wrong. There is a place for reproving those that are in sin, for handling church discipline. But that's not the, that's not the situation here. Here we're talking about how we live for God, how we live our lives, having put on the Lord Jesus Christ and how we are responsible before God for our actions as when we stand or fall before our own master. He says, and he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. If this person we're talking about is truly a believer, if he has come to saving faith in Christ, then he will stand and he will be kept and strengthened by God. Just like you will. Believer to believer, you will stand because God is faithful to you. His spirit indwells you and keeps you. And even those believers with different opinions will stand as well. My opinion of you or anyone else doesn't make or break you. You don't stand or fall by my opinion. But because of the one to whom you belong, the Lord is able to make him stand. And this is the same truth we saw back in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, where Paul said, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Verse 33, he said, who will, ju- who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. The point being that since we have been chosen by God, we have put our faith and trust in his gospel. He is able to keep us and nothing can ever change that. So as believers, we are all accountable to our master. Verse 5, he says, one person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. So here he goes into another example, right? Not just food, but now he's talking about days. He presents this observance of days as an example. Another issue that was big with the law and in Judaism could very well be referring to how the Roman church handled the Sabbath, right? You get these Jews and Gentiles alike, and here they're like, well, which day should we be worshiping on? Well, what do you mean we're not worshiping on Saturday? Why are we, not, why are we worshiping on Sunday? Why are not, we're not worshiping on Saturday? 
But we see it today as well, right? That might have been the situation then, but we see this same type of thing today as well. Some people have very strong convictions on what they should or shouldn't be doing on Sundays, right? It's the Lord's Day. We can't go to Chick-fil-A today, right? Because they don't open on Sundays. Some say you should never work on Sundays. You should devote the whole day to God. Others say it's no different than any other day, except that it's the day that we go to church. We would probably all say that Sunday is a day that we do devote to the Lord because we do come here and worship. But we saw back in chapter 12, verse 1, that we are to devote everything that we do, our entire bodies, every day to God in worship. So does one day really stand above another for a believer? Should we really act any different on one day than we do on another day? But if someone wants to set Sunday aside as a special day, that's perfectly fine. But what's the key here? Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. It's what you are convinced of in your own mind. What do your convictions tell you? If you're convinced that you shouldn't work on Sundays, you shouldn't work on Sundays. If you're convinced that you should wear nice clothes every Sunday, then you should. If you're convinced that you shouldn't eat from a certain store or restaurant, maybe because they had an idol in there, right? You go to a restaurant that's got a, a, a little Buddha or something like that sitting in the front. Maybe that bothers you. Maybe you're convinced I shouldn't eat there. Then you shouldn't eat there. Those are your convictions, what you are convinced in your own mind. Where it gets hard for us is when others don't share those convictions. I saw him go into that restaurant. Of course, we think that we should, that they should accept our convictions, right? Now, if they're biblical convictions, once again, that are expressly taught in scriptures, then they should be all of our convictions. For example, I mean, you could kind of combine these, right? It's a biblical truth that we are to be witnesses for the Lord. We are to be sharing the gospel with people. That's just what scripture says, right? That's not options for us. That's not me saying, well, my liberty says I don't share the gospel. That's not your liberty. You should be sharing the gospel. But who do we share with? Neighbors, family members, complete strangers? Do we share every day? Do we share once a week? Do we share once a month? Maybe we do it differently. Maybe we have different convictions on that and how often and, and to who we're sharing with. Maybe we share in different ways at different times. Another thing that we are supposed to do that is not optional, we are to be supporting our local church with our offerings, right? That's another biblical conviction. But how much? 1%, 10%, 5%, 50%? There's a, where's our conviction on that? We all have our convictions, but we need to refrain ourselves from making it our mission to make everyone else fall in line with what our convictions are. Now, we can have discussions with one another. There's nothing wrong with that at all. You know, we, you say this and I say this. So let's, let's talk about that. I'll tell you why I think the way that I do. You can tell me why you think the way that, that you do. You know, why we believe it's right thing for me to do and what's right. But in the end, as long as we're not talking about, again, blatant sinful issues, we might go away from those discussions still having our different convictions and still being able to fellowship with one another. If we're convinced one way, that's what you should do. If I'm convinced 
sorry, if you're convinced one way, that's what you should do. If I'm convinced in something else, that's what I should do. And the reason is brought out then in verse 6, where it says, He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. What's the focus here? It's on the Lord. In each case, the focus from that individual and everything that we do for each individual believer should be on doing what you're doing for the Lord. I take Sunday off from work for the Lord. I refuse to eat certain foods for the Lord. I eat all foods and I give thanks to God for them. And I do that for the Lord. I like to sing these songs rather than those songs for the Lord. I observe every day as a day devoted to God for the Lord. You see, we're talking here about different ways in which we each have liberty to serve the Lord, to live our lives for Him. As children of God, this is what our lives are all about. Weaker and stronger alike are functioning with the same purpose to be pleasing to Him, to honor Him. If I come in and say that you shouldn't be doing something because it doesn't follow my convictions, in essence, I'm telling you that you should be pleasing me not God. If I sit there and say to you, you shouldn't dress that way. You should dress this way. And and the reason that I was dressing this way or the reason that I was not eating that was because I thought it was pleasing to God. But you know, he really gave me a hard time about it. So I guess I'm going to go ahead and eat it. Well, if I'm not fully convinced of that, then that's not what I should have done. I should have followed my convictions. So we understand that there will be differences on some things, but we also need to allow room for the other person's motives. He goes on, verses 7 and 8 here. Sorry, I'm trying to make it through. Verse 7, for not one of us lives for himself and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. The point in these verses, who do we live for? Who is our life for? This goes back again to our overarching verses at the very beginning of chapter 12. We are presenting ourselves as a living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice to God. As a child of God, I no longer live for myself. That statement doesn't mean that I never stumble or do things for selfish reasons, but the pattern of my life is that I am to be living for the Lord. As believers, everything focuses on our relationship with God. All that I do is done in the context of being a servant for the Lord. This involves every aspect, whether life or death, right? And he uses this to show that this is all-encompassing, right? What else is there? Whether you're alive or dead, that's pretty much it, right? It's all-encompassing. If I'm still alive, then my life is spent in service to Him. And on the day that I die, I die for Him as well and spend all of eternity with Him and for Him. And that pretty much takes care of it all. It's my whole existence. I no longer belong to myself, and therefore I don't do things for myself. I do them for God. It's interesting to note here, Paul is telling us how we should relate to one another, and the way that we do that, how we relate to one another, 
is through having a proper concept of our relationship with our Heavenly Father. So the horizontal relationships that we have here with everyone in here are defined by the vertical relationship that we have with our Lord. And that takes priority over everything else. That is what defines all of our other relationships. As I strive to please God, and you strive to please God, we can function together as like-minded believers. Paul says in Philippians 2, by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. That's how we are to be. Ultimately, that purpose is to bring glory to the Father and to further the progress of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is our goal here. Doing all that we do for the Lord. Verse 9, he says, For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. It was for this end that Christ died and lived again. We saw earlier in Romans that the death of Christ was necessary for our salvation. And that by his death, and we having died with him through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we were transferred from slavery to sin and death to a life that we now live in Jesus Christ and slavery to righteousness. Turn back with me to Romans chapter 6. Remember what Paul said in Romans 6 down to verse 4. He said, therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. The resurrection of Christ served a purpose to make our account right before God so that we might be raised to new life, to walk according to the will of God. Down in verse 10, he says, For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Does this sound familiar That in verse 10? The life he lives, he lives to God. What did we just see in verse 8 of chapter 14? If we live, we live for the Lord. Through his death and resurrection, it was made possible for us to be made alive in him and to now live for him as those who belong to him. So the second half of verse 9, back in chapter 14, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. As his child, he is my Lord. It doesn't matter whether I'm alive or dead. Right again, it's that that complete state. That relationship will never change. I am to submit to him. I am to be obedient to him. He is my Lord. As fellow believers, he is your Lord. As a church composed of the individual bodies that make up, uh, individual believers that make up the body of Christ, he is Lord of us all. And that's the point that Paul is making here. You make decisions based on what you understand is pleasing to God, and I do the same. Now, it may be that One of us has greater understanding, greater maturity, stronger in faith. But we both need to realize that may be the case. So I won't beat you over the head with my convictions, and you won't do the same with yours. Because we both understand that what we are doing, we do to honor the Lord. We are to function in obedience to Him, to bring glory in all that we do. And that's what Paul goes into on to address in verse 10. 
where he says, but you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we all, uh, for we will, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. We turn back again to the point that Paul started off with. Why are you judging each other? Why are you holding each other in contempt? In light of the life that you are all now living for your Lord, why would you treat each other this way? And we'll see in the coming verses to hinder someone in their convictions causes them to stumble, to sin against their own convictions. That's not something that we should be taking part in. He says, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. It's not our place to judge fellow believers because judgment, all judgment, judgment of all kinds belongs to God. It belongs to the Lord. We saw this judgment that is coming back in chapter 2. Turn it back to chapter 2 for a minute. Keeping in mind in chapter 2, we were at the very basics of the gospel. We hadn't gotten to the full picture yet. He said in verse 5, so starting in verse 5, he said, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. So God's judgments here are righteous and he renders to every man according to the things that that person has done. Now you may recall again as we were going through this, this is a simple statement because Paul had not yet gotten to the part of the gospel of talking about justification. We hadn't talked about justification yet. But the basic idea, the simple idea here is the same. Those who do good, which we know now, because we've read more of Romans, right? But we know now that only those um, who have accepted faith, have, have put their faith and trust in the work of Christ and believed in the gospel, only those are ones that could do good. But they will experience eternal life. And those that obey unrighteousness, who have not accepted the gospel, they have not accepted God's free gift, they will suffer wrath. Wrath. The point is that all will be judged according to what they do. It's the deeds that are judged. And the judgments are different depending on whether you are a believer or not. Unbelievers will be judged at the great white throne. There will be, a, be nothing but a guilty verdict handed out at the great white throne. It's not a judgment where God's deciding, oh, you're in heaven, you're not, you're in heaven, you're not. The great white throne, no one gets in. For believers, though, which Paul is talking about here, there will also be judgment. Now, you might think, well, I thought we were saved from any judgment. Wait a minute, for believers, why would we be judged? We're not saved from judgment, but saved from condemnation of any kind. Look over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 with me. We see in 2 Corinthians 5 the judgment of believers at the Bema seat. where we will all appear before our Lord to give an account. Now start up in verse 6, 2 Corinthians 5, for some context here. He says in verse 6, Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. 
We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Now, hopefully this sounds familiar. This sounds very much like what he was just saying in Romans chapter 14. At home in the body and absent from the Lord, that's us here now, right? We're at home in the body. We're not in heaven. Absent from the body, we're at home with the Lord, right? That's when we die, when these earthly bodies die. So whether at home or absent, dead or alive, basically, our ambition is to be pleasing to him, right? That's just what Paul was talking about. And that's what uh, Paul was saying in our passage. But now, just like he went on to say in verse 10 of our passage, look at verse 10 here. He says then, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. We will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, this judgment is not to determine whether or not we are saved. So just like the great white throne, this is also not a, well, you're in heaven and you're not. Everyone in this judgment is already in. Everyone in this judgment has eternal life. We are already, we wouldn't be at this judgment if we weren't already there. But this is a judgment for us to give an account of our service to him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul talks about how the works um, that we do in service to him will be tested with fire. If they were worthy of the Lord, they will stand. If they were worthless, if they're made of straw, they will be burned, right? And you get the picture of you have all these things. If they're made out of precious metals, if they're worthy, or if they're wooden straw, you throw a match on it. And what's left? Precious metal stands, everything else is gone, right? That's the type of judgment that we're talking about. But the believer himself will stand through the fire. This isn't a judgment on the person. This is, there is no condemnation that will ever be incurred for, at this judgment. But the things that we do today will one day be scrutinized. They will be looked at and weighed as to their worthiness before the Lord. And that's the point that Paul is referring to here, if you're back in Romans 14. And the implication is that how we treat one another here and now, we will one day give an account to God of that. He is our judge, not you, not me. But we will fall under God's judgment on this matter. We will give an account to God of how we treated one another. I don't know your heart. You don't know my heart, but God knows both of our hearts. Now, if I can, now again, I can have a concern for you if I see that you are involved in things that you shouldn't be or that you aren't involved in things that I feel you should be. I can talk to you about that concern. I can lovingly express those concerns to you, but ultimately I need to remember, you don't answer to me. I shouldn't be so arrogant as to think that you need to give an account to me on every little detail of your life. That's between you and God. That's between me and God. Verse 11, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. He quotes here from Isaiah, from Isaiah 45, 23, a chapter that talks about how there is only one God. He alone has the power over the earth. He alone is judge over the entire earth. The day will come when every single individual who has lived or living, is living or will live, will come before God in judgment. But they're not coming to me. And they're not coming to you. 
That's God's job that he has reserved for himself. And so we'll end with what he says in verse 12 this morning. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. We are each personally accountable for the things that we do. I'm not going to be called to give an account for you. I don't have to. God knows more about you than I ever could. He knows more about me than I probably know about myself, right? Often in Scripture you see, don't deceive yourself. There might be things that I've deceived myself about that He'll reveal to me. Did I truly base my convictions, any convictions that I have, off of my love for Him, or were they based on my love for myself? That's one of the questions we have to all answer. I have this conviction, I want to do this, but is it truly a conviction based on me living my life for Christ? Or is it a conviction based on me living my life for me? You will give an account for yourself, as I will too. The other thing that we see here that this verse tells us is that we will give an account to God and not to each other. We won't be standing in judgment over each other. You won't have to worry about whether or not your convictions were the same as mine or anyone else's in this room. Are my convictions on things of liberty right before God? Am I truly living my life doing all that I do for His glory and for His pleasure and not to be man-pleasing? Not because, well, he said that I should do that, and so I thought it would make him happy if I changed my conviction. We should not be judging others on these matters or looking at them with contempt. Judgment is reserved for God. Instead, we should be focusing on our relationship with Christ and being obedient and pleasing to him. That should be our concern. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you. We thank you, Lord, for this time that we have here together. We thank you, Lord, for the book of Romans. We thank you for our study in it and for the, just the truths that you've given us here, Lord. And we pray that, that we would be a people who would be focused on our relationship with you and on pleasing you and living for you each and every day. We pray, Lord, that as we make decisions on things that are not specifically addressed in Scripture, that we would make our decisions, Lord, with, with honoring you and bringing glory to you and, and focus on our convictions, Lord, before you, and that they would be right convictions. We pray, Lord, that you would just give us understanding into your word. We pray, Lord, that as we grow and as we mature in your word, that we would even be willing to look at our convictions and, and address them and make sure that, that they are still right before you, Lord, with the further understanding that we get. And Lord, we just pray that as a body of believers, that we would love one another enough to be able to talk with each other and about our concerns and about um, uh, reproof, Lord, when that's necessary, and that we would just be people that would be involved in each other's lives in everything that we do. And Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.